Now, I as um, an evangelist, many mornings I get up and I'll, I'll do this on Friday. I'll get myself a nice cup of coffee and I'll get that Ford F-350, 7.3 diesel, 2001 Dually, and we'll take off down the road. Now, many times I'm towing a 37-foot fifth wheel, so I got 14K, uh, 14 to 16,000 uh, pounds behind me. And uh, when I'm out west, many times you're going to hit a mountain. Now, if you don't, uh, if you, how many have ever crossed the Western Continental Divide? Can I see your hands? Okay, several of you have. But if you're out west and you hit that Continental Divide, I guarantee you, you're going to be going uphill for about seven or eight miles. And of course, I got a standard, so I'm hitting that thing in fifth gear, and not too long, I'm dropping it to fourth, and then I'm into third, and man, you hope you don't have to go down to second. You with me, all you truck drivers? And uh, man, you're climbing up that hill. Pretty soon, you're just going about 25, 30 miles an hour climbing up that mountain, and uh, pretty soon, about seven miles up that hill, your R's start to go up. You know what I'm talking about? You get to shift up again, maybe to third or to fourth, and there you crest the top of that mountain, and there's a big, huge brown sign that the government put there, and you know what it says? United States Western Continental Divide. Do you know what the significance of that Continental Divide is? If a raindrop falls on the western side of that Continental Divide, guess what? It ends up in the Pacific Ocean. If a raindrop falls on the eastern side of the Continental Divide, it ends up in the Gulf of Mexico. Do you know that's a big difference? Inches can make a difference in the destination of that raindrop. Did you know there's a Continental Divide in salvation? Did you know that? If you fall on the wrong side of the Continental Divide, you die lost in your sins and head to an awful place that Jesus called hell. If you fall on the correct side of the Continental Divide, your uh, sins are washed away and you're on your way to heaven. There could be no two greater different destinations in the universe than heaven and hell. So the dependence is which side of the Continental Divide do you fall on? Well, I'm not preaching on that. In a moment, you'll understand the application. I'd like to preach on the continental divide in the Christian life or sanctification, as we call it in theology. If you fall on the wrong side of the continental divide, you have a lot of defeat in your life, a lot of discouragement, what I would call a lot of pessimism spiritually, not a lot of answers to prayer and not a whole lot of blessing. If you fall on the right side of the continental divide, a lot of answers to prayer, a lot of encouragement, a divine optimism, a sense of expectancy, what's God going to do next? Now, the question would be, what determines which side of the continental divide you fall on? Of course, it's your decision. It's not random like a raindrop would be. You make the decision on which side of the continental divide you're going to fall on. Now, let me frame it up this way, and maybe this will be a help. In a moment, then we'll read our verse, because this verse of Scripture, I believe, encapsulates the tension that we're going to try to deal with tonight. Several years ago, I was preaching in Wyoming, and uh, probably about midweek, we're in a revival services, maybe a midweek, maybe a Wednesday, I can't remember. I finished preaching a message, I don't know if it was this one, but on this truth. I remember I went out into the lobby, and a young lady, probably about 22 years old, came up to me, and, and I could tell she was really had thought through the message, and she said, Brother Van Gelderen, she said, I have been in independent Baptist churches my entire life. I have never heard what you preach tonight. Now, I don't know how to take that. What do you think? I have never heard what you preach tonight. She said, I always thought the Christian life was 50-50. So I've got a question for you. She said, 50% me, 50% God. So the question is, how much of the Christian life is you and how much of the Christian life is God? Is it 50-50? How about 60-40? Maybe 70-30? 80-20? 90-10? 95-5? 99-1? How much of the Christian life is you and how much of the Christian life is us? 
Well, I'd like to us to look at the testimony of the Apostle Paul as he's really giving us a theology of his ministry. Look at verse number 29 of chapter 1 of Colossians. Don't have time to go into all the context, but he's talking about the ministry of preaching the truth that Jesus lives in us. He says, I'm, an, I'm warning men, I'm teaching men, so I can bring every man to, to uh, be perfect in Christ Jesus. He's kind of talking about his ministry content. And then he says in verse 29, whereunto I also labor, this great truth that Jesus lives in us, Whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. So the question is looking at that verse of scripture, how much of the Christian life is you and how much of the Christian life is God? Because the answer to that question determines which side of the continental divide you fall on. Okay, you say, okay, preacher, uh, uh, Paul's striving, he's working, so clearly there's action on Paul's part, so it seems like Paul's got to be part of the equation, but he's doing it according to his working, which works in me mightily, so how much is God and how much is Paul? Well, I don't know about you, but if I'm going to encourage you tonight to take out a spiritual looking glass, and let's be spiritual Sherlock Holmes tonight. Can we do that for just a few moments? And I want to teach you three truths that I think will help us determine how much of the Christian life is us and how much of the Christian life is God. Okay, the very first one is found in verse number 6 in chapter 2. So drop down just a few verses. God gives us a phenomenal principle here that helps us in theology, particularly when talking about salvation and sanctification of the Christian life. It says, as ye have received Christ Jesus the Lord, here it is, so walk ye in him. Now, did you know there's two verbs, two verbs in that verse? The first one is receive. That's talking about salvation. The second verb is the word walk. That's talking about the Christian life. Now, the interesting part is those two verbs are in different tenses. Anytime you have different tenses or different actions of the verb in a, in a verse, it often has a significance. The very first verse, the action is uh, really that particular tense. It's called the aorist tense in the Greek, and it's basically viewing the action as a whole. Now, obviously, reception is talking about the salvation moment. In other words, the tense bears out the fact that salvation is not a process. It is a crisis. It's a moment. It doesn't take you three years to get saved. It takes you a split second. Now, the process may take time, the illumination, conviction, etc., but the salvation moment is just that. It's a moment when you receive Christ Jesus the Lord. Now notice what God is saying here. He says there's something that happens in the moment of salvation when you receive Christ Jesus the Lord that needs to be duplicated in the Christian walk. The word walk is in a different tense. It's called the present tense. That's linear or durative. It is talking about a process. In other words, salvation is a moment in time, but the Christian life is a process. From the moment you get saved to the moment you die and faith becomes sight, that's the Christian walk. Now, don't miss this. God is saying we can learn a lot about the Christian life by understanding what happens in the moment of reception. Now, I don't have time. I've got a whole message on this. I can't preach it. But I do want to ask you a simple question. When you got saved, how much of the saving did Jesus do? And the answer is, he did all of it. And how much did you do? And the answer is, none of it. Sometimes it's good for me and good for all of us to say, if going to heaven depended on me, one one-hundredth of one percent, I would die in my sins and go to hell. When a man gets saved, he comes to the understanding there's nothing he can do to get saved, and he trusts Jesus to do everything he could never do. See, salvation is, I think we'd all say it, it's zero one hundred. 
I don't know about you, aren't you glad that 100% salvation is on God, not on us? We're trusting Jesus to do what we can never do. Never do it. So salvation is 0, 100. Okay, that seems to indicate by this verse then that the Christian life is 0, 100 too. Okay, you say, well, wait a second, preacher. I mean, you've you got to see here, Paul says he's laboring, he's striving, so how could it be 0, 100? Now, I'm going to be honest with you, I love theological tension. Because usually at the apex of theological tension, there is phenomenal truth. I remember wrestling through this because of different theological uh, persuasions and, of, uh, or arguing about this particular point of how much of the Christian life is God, how much is us, and kind of wrestling through this. So the first premise is Colossians 2, 6 indicates that the, the salvation dynamic needs to be repeated in the every step of the Christian walk. Now, obviously, the object's different. In salvation, we're looking to God for deliverance from the penalty of sin, but the Christian life is looking to Jesus for deliverance from the power of sin. Okay, that's linear. That's durative. Now that brings us to a second point that perhaps will help, uh, help us understand this little journey. I remember several years ago I was preaching out in the mountains that are to the east of Los Angeles. If you've ever flown into Los Angeles, you see the San Bernardino Mountains up to the north of you as you come into that valley, and then you'll cross over some mountains between the desert and the LA metro area. I was preaching in a camp up in those mountains, about 150 young people, and, and um, I remember it was, I think, a Wednesday night, a young pastor from Los Angeles got up to speak, and he wasn't really preaching, he was just giving a testimony. And as he gave the testimony, he said something that I really disagreed with. He said, now listen to me. He was well-meaning, please understand this. But he said, now listen to me, young people. I know the Christian life's hard. I know the Christian life's difficult. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't agree with that. So you say, well, preacher, what did you do? Well, I didn't want to embarrass him because he was so sincere. But the next night during preaching, I, I felt like, you know, ideas do matter. I felt like it needed to be corrected. So while I was preaching, I said, now listen to me, young people. The Christian life's not hard. The Christian life's not difficult. It's impossible. <laughs> See, if you think the Christian life's hard and difficult, you know what the answer is? Try harder. Do you know what happens when you try to do, try harder to do something impossible? You know what happens? You still can't do it. You know, there's something that's humanly impossible without aid, and that is flying. It's impossible. How many uh, out here kind of dream? You kind of, you know, you have, you're dreamers. I feel sorry for people who don't dream. I have exciting dreams. People chase me trying to kill me. I fall off cliffs. All kinds of things happen in my dreams. You know one thing I love about dreams? If you fall off a cliff, God wakes you up before you go splat. Uh, on the, that's always been a, 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 something God's graciously done for me. I always wake up before I die. It's kind of nice. And, uh, uh, you know, when you're getting chased, have you ever been chased and you couldn't run? That's just the weirdest feeling, isn't it? Unbelievable, your heart's beating like this, you know. Boy, I'm telling you, uh, who needs action movies when you got dreams? You know what I'm talking about. And uh, so, but I'll tell you one thing I absolutely dream, I absolutely love to have every once in a while, is when I can fly. How many have ever dreamed you could fly? Man, if you've never dreamed you could fly, that's, you have missed out on life. The only thing I do not like about dreams, about flying, is when you wake up, you're so bummed out. I'm thinking, oh, man, I wish I could fly. Okay, that'd be nice, just fly up, fly over to church, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but um, you know what happens if you try to fly as a human being without aid? You can't do it. You know what happens if you try harder? Still can't do it. See, the Christian life's not hard. It's not difficult. It's impossible. 
You say, preacher, could you prove that to me? Okay, let's try it out here for a moment. How much effective praying can you do without the Holy Spirit? None. How much of the Bible can you be spiritually impacted by without the Holy Spirit? Yeah. How many people can you win to the Lord without the Holy Spirit? How much true victory can you have without the Holy Spirit? You say, preacher, true victory, what do you mean? Well, there's something I might call false victory, and that would be like the lady that comes to the pastor and say, Pastor, my husband did it to me again. He hit my buttons. He pulled my lever. And I'm telling you, boy, that lava started to come up, but preacher, you'd have been proud of me. I gritted my teeth, and I didn't say anything. Though a million sarcastic comics came to mind, preacher, you'd have been proud of me. I didn't say anything. I had victory. Now, I'll be honest with you. Not saying anything is better than saying something you shouldn't. It's better to say nothing than grievous words. But I would not call that true victory. You'll say, well, preacher, what's true victory? It's when your husband hits your buttons and pulls your lever, and you don't want to say anything you shouldn't. You say, preacher, that's impossible. That was actually kind of my point. So how much true victory can you have without the Holy Spirit? And the answer is none. See, when you get a hold of this, I'll be honest with you. When I got a hold of the fact that the Christian life's not hard, the Christian life's not difficult, it's impossible. Can I say this clearly? I was free. You know what I began to realize? I need divine intervention all the time. See, when you get a hold of the fact that Christian life's impossible, it sets you free. It sets you free to trust God to do in and through your life what only he can do in and through your life. So, we first of all saw that, the, uh, that uh, Colossians 2.6 teaches us that, the, uh, that salvation is a picture, helps us understand sanctification. Second thing, Christian life is impossible. There's one last thing I'd like us to, to kind of discuss to probably help us as we uh, kind of wind this together. But one of the things I would say uh, that many times as Americans we miss is we often interpret the Bible through American culture. And one of the ways we do that is this. You know one thing American culture values? Strength. Physical strength. It's interesting, particularly when you want to watch a football game, sometimes they'll tell you how much those linemen can bench press. You know, when they tell, some, tell me somebody can bench press 600 pounds, that's really kind of amazing. You know what I'm talking about? Especially when you can't bench press the bar. You know, I'm taking the man, 600 pounds, unbelievable. That's just crazy. And, of course, my favorite football player is Walter Payton, but I won't go into that. That guy was a physical specimen. Uh, and all you uh, ancient Chicago Bears fans, of course, remember him as one of the glory moments, of course, uh, the Chicago Bears. But they say Walter Payton could bench press 600 pounds. And uh, so in our culture, we value strength. The problem is many times when we read the Bible, we assume the words power, might, and strength are talking about physical strength. But often they're not. They're talking about spiritual strength. How about this one? Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. We're not talking about human strength. We're talking about supernatural strength. I can do all things through which... So whose strength is it? And the answer is, it's his. We're not talking about physical strength. We're talking about spiritual strength. And so when it comes right down to it, friends, you and I, do you know how much spiritual strength you and I have in and of ourselves without Jesus? Do you know how much? Do you know how much spiritual strength right now you have in and of yourself without Jesus? And the answer is, you don't have any. You're bankrupt. Isn't that exciting? It actually should be 
How about this verse of Scripture? My strength, uh, my grace is sufficient for thee. For Jesus speaking, my strength is made perfect in. The word weakness is a very interesting word. It's the word strength with an alpha is the word it comes from. Now, you know what happens in the Greek language when you put an A before a word? It's just like what happens in English. It negates it. Do you know what a theist is? A theist is somebody who believes in God. Doesn't necessarily mean they're saved. They just believe in a deity. If you put an A before the word theist, does it change its definition? An atheist? How much does an atheist believe in God? And the answer is, not at all. So really what I believe that is saying is, my, Jesus is saying, my strength is made perfect in your absolute, complete absence of spiritual strength. See, you know where you and I would be if we didn't have any physical strength? We'd be in the grave. See, it's not talking, I don't believe it's talking about physical strength. It's talking about spiritual strength. We are absolutely devoid of spiritual strength. Back when I was young, I kind of thought the Christian life was weak little me getting stronger and stronger and stronger. Wow. I figured by the time I'm 50, I will be a spiritual giant. And then I turned 50. <laughs> you know what I realized when I turned 50? I got a lot of problems. <laughs> you know what I've learned, friends, and I don't want you to miss this. The Christian life is not weak little me getting stronger and stronger and stronger. The Christian life is weak little me who will always be weak, tapping into him who is strong, who will always be strong. And the Christian life is recognizing I am in need, I will always be in need, but he is Jehovah Jireh and he will provide whatever I need as long as I'm looking to him. See, the Christian life, friends, is a Christian life of 0-100. Because I don't have anything in and of myself strength-wise. I'm zero and he's the 100. Could I put it this way? 0% my will, 100% his will. Zero percent dependence on my strength because I don't have a spiritual strength and a hundred percent dependence on his spiritual strength because he has more than I'll ever need. See, it's a life of total surrender and total dependence. That's what it is. You say, well, preacher, that sounds real good, but what does that look like? I mean, can you give a picture of this? Now, Paul again says he's laboring, he's striving. We're not talking about passivity. We're not talking about no activity. We're talking about his activity in and through me. So you say, well, preacher, what does that look at like? Well, one of the best illustrations I can think of is uh, from the Bible would be the illustration, I mean, there's many, but one of my favorites would be Peter walking on the water. Now I want to ask you a question. Is walking on water hard and is walking on water difficult? And the answer is no. It's impossible. <laughs> do you know you can train for 20 years to walk on water and 20 years later you can't do it? Did you know that? Did you know there's no walking on water competition in the Olympics? Did you know that? Unless you're in Wisconsin in the middle of the winter. Okay, there's no walking on water competitions. Okay, we all get that. You can't walk on the liquid stuff. Did you know that we have some great athletes in America? Most of you know that. But did you know that they can't walk on water? Now, this is going to shock, and I'm going to offend somebody. Tom Brady cannot walk on water. He can deflate footballs, but he cannot walk on water. You with me on that? Okay. Yeah, we got some great athletes. There's things they can do, but I will tell you, they cannot walk on water. Nope, can't do it. You know why? It's impossible. So since it's impossible, it's never happened, right? No human being's ever done it. And the answer is, well, actually, there are two that have. And we all know who they are, Jesus and Peter. Well, you say, preacher, Jesus, he's God. Okay, I don't have time to go in the hypostatic union, but I believe we could prove that Jesus had to depend on, on, uh, on God too. But we'll go into that right now. Let's take Peter. You know what I love about Peter? He's just like us. 
I call Peter the perpetual junior hire. Since the junior hires aren't here, we can talk about junior hires. He's the perpetual junior hire. You say, why, preacher? Because he was always speaking before he thought. There's a lot of people who never grow out of that stage. You know what I'm talking about? Good old Peter. We love Peter. And uh, so you know the story. Here it is. They'd been out all night long trying to make headway across the Sea of Galilee. Uh, many scholars believe it was a five-mile journey. The Bible says they were in the midst of the sea and the wind was contrary. So here they are fighting the wind. They cannot make headway. And it's total darkness. Because, friend, if it was a storm, all the lamps would have been blown out. There would have been no lights in that moon, stars you couldn't see because there would have been a cloud cover. They were in total darkness on a stormy night in the Sea of Galilee. I don't know about you, that would freak me out. But these were seasoned fishermen. The Bible says it's the fourth watch of the night, so it was probably the dawning gray. That's between 3 and 6 in the morning, probably more towards 6 o'clock. The dawning gray, and evidently in the midst of that dawn, they began to see Jesus walking on the water. We all know the story. The Bible says they cried out for fear. They thought it was an apparition, a spirit. They said it's a spirit. Leave the Greek word phantos. Uh, it is a phantos is what they were saying, a phantom, a spirit, an apparition. And they cried out for fear, and Jesus said, be not afraid, it is I. We all know that. I've moved through that quickly because at this moment, Peter makes his move. He says, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. Interesting statement, isn't it? You know what they call that in the Greek? They call that a first-class condition, which simply means the if statement is assumed to be true. What Peter was not saying is, Lord, it might be you, but it might not. If it's not you, I wonder who it is. No, that's not what he was saying. He's saying, Lord, I know it's you. Bid me come on the water. And Jesus said one word. It's in the imperative mood, which means it was a command. He said, come. Come. Now, don't miss this, friend. Do you know what Peter did? Now, I want to ask you a question. We all know Peter got out of the boat, but I want you to think about this for a moment. When Peter got out of the boat, did he use physical strength? Did he move muscles? And the answer is, well, yeah, he did. Now, don't miss this. When he got out of the boat, was he trusting that physical strength to walk on water? And the answer is, not at all. That's the Christian life. You know what the Christian life is? It's obeying Jesus or getting out of the boat Trusting him to enable you what you could never do unless he enabled you to do it. That's the Christian life. It's not staying in the boat. It's not passivity. Jesus didn't come and take Peter and throw him into the water, no. Jesus, uh, Peter made a decision to obey Jesus, and he used his muscles to get out of the boat. But I'm telling you, friend, he was depending on Jesus to spiritually strengthen him, to enable him to do what he could never do unless he, God enabled him to do it. Friends, that's the Christian life, which means every day we ought to wake up expecting God. You open your Bible, expect God to teach you. You start praying, expect God to enable you and give you wisdom in prayer. You open your mouth in ministry, expect God to do a work in someone's heart. Do you see it, friends? See, 0100 is, that's the, the title of the message is 0100. It is, it's, the, it's falling on the right side of the continental divide. It's a total dependence on Jesus to enable you to do what you can never do. It's like going to some next door neighbor that you've tried to give the gospel to and they've been difficult and, and trusting God to enable you to give that invitation or to, to give the gospel. That's the idea, friend. It's taking muscles and moving to go next door, but it's trusting God to give you the words, trusting God to give you the spiritual, uh, the spiritual strength to walk on water. That's the Christian life. I remember when I was um, 15 years old, I, um, 
was sitting, I, I was in chapel at, at uh, the Marquette Manor uh, Christian School, it was called at the time, and, and uh, there was probably, I don't know, there was a bunch of kids, there a couple hundred ki kids in the student body at the time, and I remember that my uncle was preaching, he was a paraplegic, he was preaching from a wheelchair, and in the middle of his message, he, he, he stopped, he said, Jimmy, that's what they call me back there, he said, Jimmy, he said, would you read such and such a passage of scripture? Now, when I was in high school, I would have characterized myself this way, shy, introvert. Now, most of you know that humanity is divided into three groups. Number one, a, a, um, uh, an extrovert. Okay, if I were to ask tonight who's the extroverts, they'd be like this, ooh, 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 me, you know what I'm talking about? You probably got a few out here, you probably know who they are. Okay, extrovert. Then you have an ambivert, that's where most people are. They're in between, they're just kind of normal. If I said, how many of you are ambiverts? Kind of probably most of you would raise your hand. And then if I said, how many of you are introverts? They would never raise their hand. <laughs> you couldn't get them to raise their hand. That was me, okay, that was me. So when my uncle said, you've got to stand and read a passage of scripture, I'll never forget that. I mean, I, I, you know, when you're blonde, you have a disadvantage. Your face changes colors. You know what I'm talking about? It was like a thermometer, like this. I could feel the heat going up my face. Uh, I, I have, everybody has an Adam's apple, but another one came into my throat. I'm not sure where that apple came from, but another one came in my throat, and I could feel the burning heat come off my forehead, off the back, and then it's like tears began to brim up in both of my eyes. I thought, I'm going to cry. I'm going to cry. This is terrible. I remember standing to my feet, opening my mouth to quote that scripture, and when I did, I think it came out an octave higher than it should have. You know what I'm talking about? Man, I remember choking through those verses, sitting down, closing my Bible, folding my arms, sliding back in the chair and thinking, I hope that never happens to me again. Now, if I was God, I would have said, you know, I don't think that's a good God. That's not probably a good prospect over there. You with me on this? But God doesn't work that way. I'm telling you, for the next year, God dealt with me about the call to preach. And it got intense toward the end of my junior year. And I'll never forget that Sunday night service. I fought God the entire service. Not because I was a hate, I hate God, get out of my life rebel. I wasn't. It was just so I didn't think I could do it. And I remember that service walking down that aisle, grabbing my dad's hand, who'd preached a message I hadn't heard a word of because I'd been wrestling with God. I looked up in my dad's eyes and I said, Dad, I think God's calling me to preach. I will never forget my dad's words, never. They stunned me. He said, Jim, your mother and I have known it for a long time. We've been praying for you. Wow, I was stunned with that. I, it could have fooled me. You said, well, preacher, was the burden rolled off? I mean, was there joy in your heart? Actually not. I remember going out in the lobby, absolutely miserable. I thought to myself, now I've yielded to do something I know I can't do. I thought, well, I've got one more year of high school, then I got four years of Bible college. Five years. Maybe something will happen. Maybe I'll get hit by lightning. Something will alter chemistry in the, you know, something, I don't know, something will happen. That's my beginning. Now, I thought I had five years to preach, but my dad didn't believe that. He believed you're called to preach. Get to it, buddy, get to it. And so pastors would call my dad. Uh, he'd been in Chicago for a while. They said, Pastor, I'm going to be gone on Sunday. Could you send a staff member over to preach? And you know what my dad started doing? My son Jim, he's been called to preach. I'll send him over, 16 years old. A few calls like that, they all dried up until I went to college, okay? Didn't get any more calls. I'll never forget my first assignment in Oak Park, Illinois. I remember I, my dad just, he didn't, he didn't go with me. He just told me, okay, son, they want you to preach on Sunday morning. The pastor's going to be gone. And I remember driving over that church scared to death. 
16 years old, walked in. It was an old church building. I mean, it had to be uh, 60, 70 years old. I walked into big stained glass windows. I walked into that church building. No offense, but the people in the church were older than the building. You know what I'm talking about? I thought I'd taken a turn into a nursing home, you know. I'm thinking, man, these people are old. What do you do when you preach to old people? What do you preach to old people about? Robbing Medicare, cheating on your income tax? You know, what is it? I don't know. Of course, the youngest person in the audience was in their 40s, but I'm telling you, when you're 16, somebody in their 40s has got one foot in the grave and going fast. You know what I'm talking about? I'm just a 16-year-old kid. I'm sitting on the front pew, and they started the service. No offense, but... I mean, the singing was slow, and it was boring. It, it kind of reminded me of funerals. It really did. And, and in fact, I think some were practicing. It wasn't going to be long, okay? Now, again, when you're 16, you think things you shouldn't. But anyway, I'm sitting on the front row thinking, what have I got myself into? I got up there. They announced me like I was some world-famous evangelist. I got up, put the outline there, put my Bible right here, put my hands on either side of the pulpit, and I plowed through 25 minutes of sheer boredom. You with me? I mean, I just plowed through them. I thought, this is terrible. When I finished the message, I felt like that was terrible. I, I was in a good church. I heard good preaching. I knew what good preaching was, and I knew what good preaching wasn't, and I knew what just happened was not good preaching. I wanted to slip off the back. I really did. But I'm a preacher's kid. You know the problem? I know protocol. I got to stand at the door and have everybody come by and lie to me. That's protocol. So I'm standing at the door, sure enough. Dear little old ladies would come by, pat my hand, and so, oh, sonny boy, sonny boy, wonderful, wonderful message. I'm thinking to myself, you didn't even have your hearing aid turned on. Now, you don't say stuff like that. But I'm 16. I'm thinking things like that. Pretty soon, everybody's out of the auditorium. I'm embarrassed. I wanted to get out of there. And the 40-year-old guy, he was the treasurer, comes up, takes an envelope out, hands it to me, said, Brother Van Gelderen, this is your honorarium. Honorarium? You mean I got paid for that? Oh, to be honest with you, I thought I was a thief. I remember, uh, I, I knew I couldn't. I, I wanted to give it back. I say it sincerely, but I knew I couldn't. I'm a preacher's kid. I know protocol. You got to take it. So I took it. I went out in my little car, opened it up, and $50. I thought, man, that's a lot of money. You say, preacher, that's really not a lot of money. 1976, money. <laughs> Sheer money. Before Jimmy Carter and inflation. You ever heard of inflation? Okay, you know what I'm talking about? 50 bucks was big money. You could, hey, kids, you could put your gas in your tank 10 times on 50 bucks. You could go to McDonald's 50 times on 50 bucks, get a hamburger, french fries, and a small Coke. I know because I remember the commercial. Okay. And I remember driving home thinking to myself, I heard, I thought you're supposed to like it. I didn't like that. That was my beginning. Make a long story short, and I'll try to move this through. I finished um, uh, that uh, high school and then went off to Bible college. And I had a good year. God began to grow. I grew in some areas. But I never forget, at the end of my freshman year, my dad told the Marquette Manor Baptist Church, he said, uh, my son's going to preach. And um, on Sunday night before he goes back to school, I want everybody to be. I remember I was a little more excited about it, and I still hadn't any, any training on pulpit speech, but I did the best I could. It was a pretty sorry-looking message, but I did the best I could. I was excited about the passage. and I, I remember the morning came. My dad announced the church, okay, be here tonight. Don't miss it. My son's going to preach, and my dad could promote like nobody's business. And so I remember going home, and we ate lunch, and I said to the family, uh, I got the basement. Nobody bother me. And I remember going down in that basement, and I will tell you, for three hours, I pled with God. 
I'd never had a three-hour prayer meeting. It was not a sophisticated prayer meeting. But I remember down in that basement saying, God, you've got to do something. God, I can't do this. God, I can't. God, I played with God. I'm telling you, friends, I said, God, I, I, I looked at the message, and I'm telling the message was on life support. You say, preacher, why didn't you work on your message? Because it was on life support. Three hours was not enough to resuscitate it. I knew if God didn't do something, I was done. I pled with God. God, I can't do this. And I'll never forget about 5 o'clock, somebody yelled down the, the stair stairway, Jimmy, time for church. I remember walking up those wooden stairs of that basement. I've never been executed, but I think I know how it feels to go to your execution. I'm walking up that thing thinking, what in the world? It's one thing to bore people you'll never see till you get to heaven. By that time, they'll forgive you. It's another thing to bore the hometown crowd. And I remember getting in the car all the way over. I'm pleading, God, you've got to do something. God, I can't do this. I remember getting there, and wouldn't you know it, ended up going on the uh, platform with my dad, sitting next to my dad, and, and by that time, they doubled the auditorium. The church was growing by leaps and bounds, and, and the auditorium was jammed, about 500 people jammed on that Sunday night. Everybody came to see the preacher's kid go down in flames. You know what I'm talking about? They're all there. This is a historic night. I'm sitting on the front with a sorry-looking outline, scared half to death. I'm figuring I'm, I'm going to be done in five minutes. My dad gets up, introduces me again. You thought he was introducing a world-famous evangelist. I remember coming to that pulpit. I put my Bible here, outline here. My dad even had marks. He never moved from the pulpit. He, wasn't, he just had it like this, and, and I put my hands right where dad would, his hands. And I started preaching, and I'm going to be honest with you, friends. In that moment, something happened. It was not 60 seconds into that message before I realized, I'm not in this pulpit alone. And I don't know how to explain this, friends. I was free. I left the pulpit, went over to this side of the auditorium. It was a long rectangular auditorium. If you've ever been to the church over there, you know what I'm talking about. And, and uh, this side over here looked like a bunch of sinners over there, kind of like tonight. But anyway, and I started preaching on this and preaching on that. I remember saying things. I'm thinking, whoa, that was really good. Where did that come from? That wasn't in the notes. Then I went to the other side, saw a bunch over on this side, started preaching over here. And I will tell you, I preached 45 minutes, and I don't mean, I don't know how to explain it. I loved every minute of it. When I was done, I gave that invitation. I'd been in that church since I was six years old. I saw some, saw some of those people known me most of my life. I saw some of those people coming down the aisle, and some of them with tears streaming down their face. The altar was packed. Now, I wish I could tell you, friends, that I learned something that night I've never had to relearn, but that would not be telling you the truth. But I can't tell you this much. You know what God was trying to teach me that night? Zero, 100. He was trying to teach me, in and of yourself, you can't do this. Now, I will tell you, when I stood to that pulpit, I knew a couple of things. I couldn't do it, and if God didn't intervene, I was done. I'd like to say I had great faith that night. I didn't. I was clinging on for just dear life, pleading for God to intervene. But I'm going to tell you something, friends. That's the Christian life. Aren't you glad your part's the zero? <laughs> His part's the hundred. You say, well, preacher, what's the key? The key is, God, 0% my will, 100% yours. 0% dependence on my strength because I don't have spiritual strength. And 100% dependence on your strength because you got more than I'll ever need. And then get out of the boat when Jesus speaks. And trust him to enable you to do what you can never do unless he enables you to do it. And you know what happens then? You wake up in the morning and think to yourself, I wonder what God's going to do today. And I will tell you, friends, I believe that God wants to, there needs to be supernatural fingerprints on our life every single day. When you open the Bible, 
when you pray, when you minister to others. It's all about depending on Jesus to enable us. That's God's theological continental divide.